Hello, I'm Amelia Rankert-Thomas, and this is Episode 9 of More at Stake, the Family Business Podcast. Today, we're pleased to welcome Blair Tripp of Continuity Family Business Consulting. Last year, Blair and her business partner, Doug Baumel, published an important addition to the Family Business Library. It's called Deconstructing Conflict, Understanding Family Business, Shared Wealth, and Power. Today, we'll be talking about the conflict equation featured in Blair and Doug's book, which breaks down the elements of conflict in family business systems. Blair, welcome to the Family Business Podcast. Oh, thank you. So how did you and Doug come to express conflict in the form of an equation? Well, you know, we were trying to understand as we worked with families, how do we come up with a comprehensive framework that really breaks down into its component parts what is going on, what the reasons are that families get into conflict and the triggers that really bring them into an active level, and and ultimately then what are the levers to manage that conflict. And it seemed that an equation format gave the opportunity to look at all sorts of components simultaneously to understand what was happening, and then as a result, you'd be able to see as you change one or two of the components, how the level of conflict or the potential for that conflict was affected. So what are the basic elements then of the equation? Um, Well, we look at the level of interdependence, and um, we can talk more about interdependence later, but just how um, many roles people are are playing in the family and what where are they overlapping. We look at the potential reasons for conflict, and there are three basic reasons for conflict. Um, and so that's a huge component. And uh, the levers for managing conflict uh, are in the denominator. The family factor is another one. Uh, and And really the external factors that are not within the control of the family. So those are the key components, really the reasons for conflict, the triggers, and then the levers to manage them. And and you point out that the focus of the book is on understanding and managing conflict and not eliminating it. Why can't we, you know, sort of aspire to eliminating conflict? And and why is conflict, in fact, so common in family businesses? You know, I think conflict is built into the structure of family enterprise People are having many different roles. Um, As I mentioned earlier with the interdependence, some of them are managing within the context of the business. Some of them are family members not in the business. Some are owners. Some are on boards of directors. And as a result, they have different motivations and concerns at different times. And for example, if you had somebody who was just an owner, they're generally concerned with getting dividends and having their business appreciate. For somebody who's managing in the business, they want those things as well, but they're also really interested in in getting good salaries and perks and reinvesting for growth. So there's a built-in conflict in the motivations of of somebody in one role versus the other. And if you throw into that the family dynamics, because sometimes these are both family members, sometimes they're siblings, sometimes they're cousins, sometimes parent-child all of that baggage gets sort of thrown into the works. And so the fundamental conflict that that has to do with their roles or their multifaceted roles, um, just it it gets exacerbated. We certainly have have seen that as as well. Um, Now, it's it's interesting because the equation 
appears to be mathematical, and it looks like one of the ones that I saw somewhere in high school. But you would say very clearly in your book that the equation isn't mathematical. So why is it expressed as an equation? Well, as I, as I said earlier, the beauty of an algebraic equation is, is that you can see all the component parts at the same time and understand how they are related to each other. The equation is a, is a fraction. And as you probably remember from grade school, if the denominator gets bigger, the bottom part of the, the fraction gets bigger, the ultimate answer or the, or the, the product is, is lower. If the numerator, the top part of the equation, gets bigger, then the conflict, which is what we're trying to measure, is bigger. So the reasons and the triggers for conflict, the, the things that are really getting people up in arms and aggravated, those we see in the numerator. So those are the reasons. Those are the triggers. Those are the, the anger points. The bottom part of the equation, the denominator, has the things that we can do to help the family move forward, how we can remediate a situation, how we can help them manage what's going on in the numerator. So it's, it's mathematical in the sense of the relationships of the different variables, but we're never going to be putting actual numbers. There's no, you can't measure how, how much the opposing goals component might be or how much the disrespected power component might be. But you recognize that if there are a lot of reasons for conflict, if there are a lot of triggers, there's a much higher likelihood of more conflict. And to the extent that you have more, um, more of a, of a strong family bond, which lives in the denominator, um, that as, as that gets bigger, if you can build that, um, that will lessen the amount of conflict. So we're always working either to reduce the denominator or increase the denominator, but in any event, to try to shift, make, make interventions, to use a sort of family business consulting term, um, you know, interventions that would reduce the ultimate size of this fraction. Absolutely. And it's, it's not that you're going to reduce human behavior to a, to a numerical equation. I mean, that's, that's really not possible. It's really just a way to understand what's happening in the system, because there's a lot of complexity. And if you can break it down, you can manage it. So how do you understand what's happening so that ultimately you can help, help manage the conflict? Now, you had mentioned um, the topic of interdependence a little bit ago, and you write that the more independent stakeholders are, the more potential for conflict exists. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by interdependence? And um, given the major role of in interdependence in conflict, how can families and business become less interdependent? Well, if you think about being on a desert island all by yourself— you're not going to have any conflict. Nobody is competing with you for resources. Nobody is trying to get a higher status than you. You're by yourself. There's no interdependence at all. If you're a Freudian, you might think that there's always going to be some conflict. But aside from those folks, there's generally, you would say, if you were on your own, no conflict. But as soon as you add more people to that island, there will be some interdependence. You have to work together to survive on that island. And as a result, there will be some competition for resources. There will be some personality clashes, perhaps. There will be different ideas of what should be done, how things should be sequenced. 
and what the goal for perhaps getting off that island might be. And with that interdependence comes different viewpoints, different perspectives, different ideas. And accordingly, you're going to have more and more potential for conflict or, or perhaps even active conflict. So in a family business, the more people you have that are working in the business who are also in the family, also have ownership, also are on the board, um, you're going to have more and more potential for uh, folks stepping on each other's toes. So that's you know really why the level of interdependence is of interest to me when I look at a family business system because it will highlight to me the the potential for for increased conflict. Now, what a lot of families will do, and we see this an awful lot in the second generation business, where you have siblings who basically decide that they are going to try to become a little less interdependent by giving each other and themselves very specific roles. So one of them might focus solely on sales and marketing, another on operations or production, another one in finance or or the admin function. And by separating out their roles, we we look at them as, as being siloed. They then are in a position where they can trust each other to do a good job and move the business forward, but they don't have meetings. They just stick to their area and make their own decisions that are within their scope of authority. And there's very little need for them to work together or make decisions together. And with those silos, they're in a sense uh, decreasing the interdependence within the context of the business decisions on a daily basis. And that can work well. And there are a lot of companies that do incredibly well where the siblings run their areas and don't get into each other's business. It becomes more problematic as you try to transition to a next generation where there are no really articulated career paths for a a rising generation member to, to figure out how he or she can wend his or her way into the business or into a leadership position. But the siloing does work to reduce the interdependence, and that can lessen conflict. It doesn't mean the reasons for conflict don't still exist, and it doesn't mean that there aren't triggers that can can, uh, uh, trigger active conflict, but it, for at least a period of time, it will reduce the potential as they stay less less interdependent. Now, the, the conflict equation suggests that there are seven categories of conflict components. And would you say um, that some of these have an outside, outsized importance compared to others of them? Um, well, the most you know, important, I think, beyond, beyond the level of interdependence, which, which gives us a sense of, of what the overall potential for conflict is, because it shows us the numbers of people and and where they're at risk of stepping on each other's toes. But the family factor, which is in the denominator, and it's a multiplier in the denominator. So for those of you who who, um, like math and fractions and whatnot, um, the family factor is essentially a component which measures the strength of the family bond. And essentially, we're trying to answer the question, can the family bond leverage, compromise, and a commitment to change? Is it strong enough to do that? So families that have a very strong shared history, siblings or cousins who grew up together, spent holidays together, perhaps went to the same schools, carpooled, 
um, did all sorts of things together and have a really strong shared history, that will increase the family bond. Families that have a strong vision for remaining close and, and connected in the future also have that, that strengthens the family bond. So, for example, if a family believes that they, they intend to always go to the lake for the 4th of July or always spend Thanksgiving together, this is something that they have always done and they will, um, and they have regular reunions and whatnot, those families have a, have a strong family factor. Um, trust is another component in the family factor. And, and I look at trust as not, do you have my back? Will you do what's necessarily in my best interest? But rather, um, do I know you well enough so that I can predict in any occasion what you might or might not do? Because if I understand how you will behave in a particular situation, it's much more likely that then I'll be able to make decisions that perhaps are for the greater good that aren't just um, self-interested because I, I really know what you're going to do. Even if I know that what you're going to do is, is you know, thwart my progress at every, at every turn, if I know that, I can trust that that's what you're going to do and I can plan accordingly. So the family factor, which is in the denominator, which as we talked about, these are the, the levers for managing conflict, the stronger that family bond is, the more likely the family members are, the, all the stakeholders are, to working together to, to make the changes necessary. Let's talk a little bit. You just mentioned triggers. Um, let's talk a bit about um, triggers for conflict. And for so many families, conflict seems to sort of bubble up all of a sudden um, out of nowhere. And does the inclusion of a trigger in the equation mean that conflict might, in fact, have been simmering below the surface for a long time before it became a major problem? How, what do these triggers look like and how do they happen? Well, I think a way to, to um, really understand the power of the trigger is to understand that conflict is made up of three basic building blocks and the, the reasons for conflict. And so I'd like to talk first a little bit about the reasons for conflict, because I think the triggers then are, are going to make a little bit more sense. So the reasons that any conflicts exist, whether they're, you know, in your family, in your business, in your family business, in, with, with your neighbors, any sort of conflict falls into three basic buckets. People have opposing goals. And that's, that's not just different goals, but these are goals that cannot be satisfied at the same time with the given resources. Um, they have incompatible values. Again, not just different values, but values that do not coexist in the context that, that they're in. Or historical impasses, which is essentially the, the baggage, the narratives, the, the problems, the histories that people bring with them to the table. And in families, there is no shortage of, of, uh, of that baggage. So people can have all of those reasons for conflict. They can want different things. They can have different values and they can still get along just fine. Um, in that case, I would suggest that they are they're in, in fear of conflict or they're stuck. They might be unable to make decisions because they're really afraid of what might happen should they pursue one, one direction or another. 
But what's going to make for active conflict is that trigger that you're asking about. So the trigger for conflict, something that turns just a bunch of reasons for conflict into an active fight, uh, is, is generally what I would say is disrespected power. And by disrespected power, I mean when one party exerts power over another in a way that's not respected. So everybody has power in some way, shape, or form. Some people have the power of the expert. They're the only ones who know the right codes. Or they have the power of the relationships in a business. They know the bankers and the the key customers. Or they have moral authority. In a family, you often have somebody who's not involved in the business at, at, at that point, but still holds the moral authority. And so if somebody exerts power that's not respected, if I don't respect you and your authority, and yet you come and tell me what to do, that's going to, call, that's going to trigger an active conflict. So we often talk about if, if you look at a, if, if my brother is the CEO of the company, and I believe that he is the CEO because he is really um, well-educated, he does have the skills, he has the respect of the employees, um, he, he works really hard, and he knows the business. And he asks me to do a new marketing plan, which I do as the marketing director, and he rejects it. Then you could say there would be a conflict, and I would perhaps be very disappointed because I had spent a lot of time putting out a piece of work that I valued and that I believed was was really speaking to the values of the company and whatnot. But I would not necessarily start a huge fight because my plan was rejected, because I respected my brother's authority as the CEO. If, on the other hand, I did not respect his authority as CEO, if I believed he was CEO because he was the oldest or maybe because he was the only son and only a son was going to get that job or because he was dad's golfing buddy, uh, but that I was the one who worked hard and had the right education and had the respect of the employees if my plan were rejected and I didn't respect his power, then I might have a mutiny. I might start getting people to, you know, join, join my team and fight this or, or, uh, you know, create some active conflict. So, and would the, would the same be the case if you felt that he had sort of just not even read your plan and had just sort of dismissed it out of hand and not respected you? Would that also be a possible way that might happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I'm the little sister and I'm just, you know, I don't deserve any any credit for any of this or even the time of day, that will create a, a, a conflict that, you know, that is triggered by that rejection or even how that rejection happens. If, if I'm told, you know, quietly in his office, you know, I don't think this speaks to, to what I'm my vision for this company. That's one thing. If at a board meeting he said this plan is is garbage and useless and you know I think it should be thrown in the trash and I'm humiliated in front of my peers or in front of the board, that's another way that 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 power that he has is going to be disrespected. So you um you had, you just said that there are three underlying reasons for all conflict and one of the things you say in the book is that each demands a different kind of approach and. In my own experience working with families, they have real difficulties sometimes sorting through the reasons for conflict, what's actually happening in the background. All they can do is feel 
the disrespected power. How can this book help them do that kind of a sorting exercise? Well, I think it's a way to unpack whatever the issue is that you at, at, a, at a gut level know is, is problematic. So if you think about goals in, in a business, you might think about um, a growth strategy. So if one person wants to grow and become a national chain and another wants to remain small, local, high quality, those are goals that cannot be uh, accomplished at the same time. There has to be a choice. So though that is that is a goal versus a value and a value is sort of at, at your core what is it that you believe what's important to you we see this a lot within the context of businesses as as risk tolerance some people believe that um or they've grown up believing that debt is terrible you should never take out loans you should only spend what you have um other people believe that some leverage is, is prudent and that you need to have some leverage, you need some debt. So the level of risk tolerance is, is a value. What, what, what you believe is a way to function, is a, as a way to do business. If, if two people are trying to make decisions together and they have a different view of debt, that's going to get in the way. We also see the values playing out on a, on a personal level. We have political differences, sometimes religious differences within the same family, um, and these these are values that can be very uh, incompatible in certain situations. So, you know, figuring those out, you know, we, we look at um, addiction and substance abuse issues. We we put that in the values bucket. It's, it's sort of unclear um, if that's really a value, but it's sort of how you approach or how you would deal with substance abuse or alcoholism in a family Um and sometimes people have very incompatible ways of, of looking at issues like that. And then the historical impasses, I think it's pretty clear, you know, the families bring with them, each individual brings with himself or herself a narrative about how they got to where they are or how their branch was treated in the past or how their, their you know, grandfather treated his children, you know, the parents or the aunts and uncles. Um, and to the extent that somebody can parse out what is bothering them? What is, what is the, uh, the rub? And is this a goal? Is this a value? Is this some historical impasse? Um, then they have a better uh, ability to, to manage it and to um, approach managing that particular issue in a way that's going to be productive. Let's talk for a moment about the family factor, which you mentioned earlier is an enormous part of the denominator of the conflict equation, and it it plays a big role in determining the intensity of the conflict and whether the family will be able to deal with the conflict before it escalates to litigation or some other dispute resolution system that may really result in some serious collateral damage. As I understand it, the stronger the family factor, the better, right? Yes. And so what steps would you recommend that families take to strengthen the family factor? You know, I think the more time that people spend with each other, that family members get together and and have activities that they share, um, the better. As I mentioned, you know, trust is is a measure of predictability. If you don't know somebody, you can't really trust them. 
So the more you get to know somebody and understand what makes him or her tick, the more you can see how they make decisions, the more trust you will have with them over time. Also, in terms of the the time that families spend together, you build shared experiences. Hopefully, most of them are positive. There are going to be some that will be negative. But again, that becomes the family lore. That becomes the family stories that get told over and over. And the more of that that happens, the stronger the family bond becomes, and the family becomes much more resilient. So when conflict strikes... They're, they're stronger. They're better able to pull together and face the problem together. And if they have shared experiences, they can build off of those um, in a way that, that helps them really look together at how do we solve this rather than how do we compete with each other, but how do we work together for the common good? Let's um, swing over for a moment and talk a little bit about conflict management and um just paraphrasing a little bit, you say sort of it's all well and good to understand how conflict develops and gets triggered, but what about managing it? And um, the book describes a number of conflict management approaches. Um, I was really struck because I, you know, I like, I think many people think, okay, litigation, arbitration, or mediation, but your list is really different and um, much richer. Um, can you talk about the your your list and um, maybe starting with the approaches that people would turn to, like force and bargaining, and then um, talk about the others? Sure. Um, force and bargaining, as you say, are really the, the go-to approaches for most people. It's what they think they should do. If somebody is not doing what I want, I will force them to my will if I am able to do that. And force takes the form of litigation. You mentioned litigation. You mentioned arbitration, which for those of you who don't know about arbitration, it's essentially a private court. You're hiring a private judge to make a decision. Um, Retaliation is another form of force. If you don't do this, I will do that. Um, And and those are things that uh, people turn to. They're, They're used to doing that. Bargaining is another one. Now, negotiation is great. Mediation is great in certain circumstances. If you can negotiate with somebody and move on, that's terrific. Um, Mediation is essentially negotiation uh, with a little bit of help and where you have a neutral who's helping you do that. The problem with these approaches is, is that if you think back to the reasons for conflict, which we articulated as opposing goals, incompatible values, and historical impasses, force and bargaining will really only attend to issues that are opposing goals. So if you want different things, um, you're in a position to bargain and make a deal. You can compromise or you can force somebody through a court to do it your way. But the issues that mostly plague family-owned and operated companies are issues of incompatible values and historical impasses. So if you're looking at the fact that you, you can't get along for a variety of reasons, force and bargaining aren't going to be effective approaches. You can't force me to like you. You can't negotiate with me to feel differently about something. There's got to be a different way. So what we think is the the most important approach to managing conflict in a family enterprise is we call development, where we look at developing structures and we look at developing people. 
So if you look at structural development, uh, that's that's sort of the low-hanging fruit. It's much easier to, to put in structures into organizations. So, for example, in a business, you might create an organizational chart that has specific job descriptions and clear accountability. Uh, you might put in policies and procedures. How are people compensated? What does that look like? Who, who can work in the business? You're going to look at family employment. So these are structural pieces that you can do um, which make clear how the company will operate. And it takes a lot out of the personal realm so that people aren't feeling like you're making a decision because you don't like my spouse. So Amy's, your spouse is allowed to be in the business, but mine isn't. Well, why? Is it because the family doesn't like my spouse and they like yours? Perhaps, but maybe if maybe, maybe it's a skill issue. So by putting really clearly articulated policies down, that will make clear a lot of things which otherwise would be muddy and, and cause conflict. And then on a personal level, you know, we talk about personal development. That can be things like um, leadership coaching or, or, you know, life coaching to help people, you know, maybe do their jobs better or get their, um, their, their ideas clear about what they're trying to achieve. You can build skill sets, education, help help people understand, you know, the, the broader economy or the, the industry that the business is working in. Um, these are things that you can do to help people, uh, do, do a better job. Um, and to the extent that you can develop the people and develop the organizations, you can grow them out of conflict. And it seems to be much more effective and, and really sustainable if you, if you do it that way. So dispute resolution or negotiation or mediation um, can work on an individual dispute. Conflict in a family business is a systemic issue. And so it's, it's not something that you can resolve and be finished with. You have to manage it over time. And so the development will speak or the developmental approach will speak to how do you develop the, this, the institutions and the, and the people so that they can over time manage that conflict. Well, and certainly um, I think that really resonates with me as someone who focuses most of my work on governance because governance would seem to me to be squarely a developmental effort to reduce conflict, <laughs> a systemic developmental effort. Um, you also mentioned releasing blame. And can we talk a little bit about that aspect of managing conflict? Sure. You know, as I said, one of the key reasons that, that families get into trouble or get into conflict is because of historical impasses, things that happened in the past. And whether they happened the way they're remembered or not is anyone's, anyone's guess. People remember events and they hear stories over time that may or may not be accurate, but their perception is that they are accurate. And so there are countless families where people don't talk to each other, for example, because they can't forgive what terrible thing that person did in the past or that that person's parent had done to, to someone else in the past. So, again, you're not going to be able to force somebody to forgive you. You're not going to be able to force somebody to forget about some transgression in the past. But rather, rather you want a, a, a process of as, as you said, that we call releasing blame, which is sort of a fancy word for forgiveness or a fancy way to say forgiveness. And we help people understand that, that forgiveness is a choice. 
and you can choose not to forgive. And there are an awful lot of people who would prefer to not forgive somebody than to to let them off the hook. So that's the first thing that we teach people is is that they, they can choose to hold that grudge or not. If they want to move forward, there, there are a few different uh, paths. There is what we call cheap forgiveness, and that's just saying, that's fine, that's okay, no problem. Um, and that's honestly no better than a cheap apology that's disingenuous and doesn't work. It sounds good saying, yes, I forgive you, but if it's not genuine, that's really not going to help in the long term. So rather we look at two other opportunities to 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 approach forgiveness or two ways to approach forgiveness. One is by, by um, a, a genuine forgiveness process that involves the two parties who are at odds really wanting to move forward and really wanting to spend the time and energy to understand and articulate to the other their contribution to the impasse. Everybody has to understand that it does take at least two to tango here. And everybody has some contribution to whatever it was that has occurred. And if they can acknowledge that to each other, discuss the impact that the issue or, or whatever the, the uh, issue was, that the impact that that's had, and the other can, can accept that, not just defend him or herself, but, but truly um, accept it and understand that perspective, and they can have some back and forth, that's, that's another way to move forward. If the other party is not interested or willing to go through that genuine forgiveness process, or if that person has passed away and you're still holding this deep-seated grudge, there's, there's a, a process of acceptance, of just understanding that this is what happened, it's in the past, and that you accept the reality of it, but that you're not going to let it you know, eat you, continue to eat you up. Now, some people can really benefit from some psychotherapy to help them through this. And I think that for, for people who uh, would find that useful, I would say definitely get, get the help. Um, for others, just going through a, a less involved process of understanding, again, understanding their contribution and um, the situation and thinking through clearly how they want to approach it going forward is a way for them to ultimately release the blame and allow them and their family to to, uh, continue on. We're nearing, sadly, the end of our time together. Um, Blair, if you were to offer one piece of advice to a business-owning family that is trying to cope with serious conflict, what would it be? Um, I would say to have really good open communication, clear and transparent policies and procedures for how things get done, how decisions are made, to have a good dispute resolution system in place so that there's there's a forum, there's a way for people to talk about and resolve individual disputes that come up, but to really understand that there is no way to ultimately manage, uh, there's no way to resolve conflict it has to be managed because, as I said earlier, it's it's really built into the system. It's woven into the fabric of a family enterprise. And understanding that and accepting that you need to manage this over time is going to give you the perspective and, and the will to stay on top of it and continue to uh, to do so. 
So managing conflict is certainly a skill set that all business-owning families, enterprising families are really going to want to invest in and focus on. Yeah, I, I would say it's the, the really the key critical success factor for family enterprise is understanding how to manage conflict over time. Blair, thank you for joining us today and helping us to learn more about conflict in family businesses. Blair Tripp and her business partner, Doug Baumel, are the authors of Deconstructing Conflict, Understanding Family Business, Shared Wealth, and Power. You can find Blair's latest article, a link to the book, and more about Blair and her work on our website, moreatstake.com. You've been listening to More at Stake, the family business podcast. As always, we encourage you to send your questions or comments to us at office at moreatstake.com or through our website at moreatstake.com. I'm Amelia Renkert-Thomas. Thank you for listening.